And uh, outside of a few weeks at the end of the fall, we'll be in Romans 5 for the whole semester, so to say. Uh, And today, we begin three weeks in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And why all this time in Romans 5? Well, because it is a gloriously rich chapter of the Bible and a gloriously rich chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. That's where we'll be at uh, all fall. So that's where we'll go. Uh, I love to play Jenga. Any other Jenga aficionados in here? Anybody like to play Jenga? Yeah, it's, it's an overlooked board game or, or block game, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Uh, I, uh, I like to play, but I got I gotta confess him, I probably won't play with you because I play pretty aggressively when it comes to Jenga. Uh, I'm not conservative. I don't take the middle pieces. I'm constantly going for the side pieces. My goal is destabilization with every move. That's what I want. That's what I'm shooting for. And today we look at a central part of the gospel, a piece that's so central to the good news that if you removed it, the gospel wouldn't shake, it would crumble. Today we look at the doctrine of justification. And you might be asking yourself, well, hey, before we get into the doctrine of justification, can you tell me what a doctrine is? Well, a doctrine is a core belief of Christianity. So to talk about the doctrine of justification, we're talking about a belief that Christians believe is core to the good news of the gospel. And this is what we're going to find in Romans chapter 5, is a chapter-length exploration of the doctrine of justification. But before we dive into Romans 5.1, let me give you a recap and let me tell you a story. Phoebe, a deacon and leader in the church, she carried a letter to the church in Rome from the Apostle Paul. Now, this church in Rome, it had been going through a lot. The church had probably been founded by Jewish Christians, but they had been exiled. And in the wake of this exile, Gentile Christians had really taken over the leadership responsibilities of the church. But now the Jewish Christians have come back in because their exile has ended, and they're now trying to kind of fully figure out what does it mean to be a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And they're working through some of the difficulties around that. Everyone has gathered to hear Phoebe read this letter from Paul. Paul has never been to Rome, but everyone there knows who he is. And the central message of this letter, like we talked about all last spring, is the good news of the gospel, which you can just kind of maybe define in shorthand as God saves, God reigns. The good news of the gospel in Romans is God saves and God reigns. So Phoebe begins the letter, Paul greets the church in Rome, and then he begins to tell a story. He tells a story of brokenness. He tells the story of idolatry and immorality, explaining to the church in Rome exactly why they have received, why they have ended up in a bad position, because they have received and inherited unrighteousness from Adam. And in Romans 2 and 3, Paul tells the church in Rome that this brokenness is what's leading them to judge one another. But underneath it all, they all stand equally unrighteous before a righteous and holy God. So right before the verse we look at today, Phoebe reads from Paul's words, and she, says, she reads in verses 23 through 25. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Phoebe pauses to take a breath. She probably sips some wine. She clears her throat. 
The room is pulsating with energy here in Rome. People have left in anger. Kids are crying. Everyone is waiting for what she's going to read from Paul next. She takes a deep breath and she reads Romans 5 verse 1. And this is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This fall, we're going to do a deep dive into Romans 5. But the next three weeks, this week and the following two weeks, we're going to spend our time in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, because justification is the point of Romans chapter 5. And it can be incredibly tricky for us to understand it, which is troubling because it's absolutely essential that we come to understand what Paul is saying here. Martin Luther, he says this, justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. This doctrine cannot be beaten into our ears too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart, so frail a thing is our flesh. Martin Luther thought, hey, you know what? If there's one thing you can't miss about the gospel, it's the doctrine of justification. Here's what I want you to see today. If we miss the good news of justification, we miss the good news. If we miss the good news of justification, we miss the good news. So let's dive into this. What has God done? Well, God has justified. God has justified. To be justified means that God has declared us righteous. And this declaration, in light of the therefore, that begins verse 1 of chapter 5, is incredible. A good Bible reading tip, you've probably heard it before. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And so when we look at Romans 5, verse 1, and it opens up and it says, Therefore, everything that Paul has said is wrapped up into this. When Paul said in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God, that's what Paul has in mind here. When Paul tells the story of our brokenness in Romans 1, saying that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of creatures and earthly things, and it led to a life of immorality and brokenness, all of that is wrapped up into this therefore that begins chapter 5. You might expect, based off of what you've heard so far in Romans That a just God, this verse would read, therefore we are justly condemned. That's not what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have been justified, we have been declared righteous in light of all this bad news, in light of our brokenness and the sinfulness of the world, God is so gracious to justify us. Even though we were born unrighteous, God has declared us righteous. And we can't forget Paul's audience. He's speaking to Christians in Rome. Christians, people who have received this righteousness of God in Jesus. And he's reminding them, even in light of all of the brokenness, all of the unrighteousness, all of the things that characterize our life apart from God, all the things that you see present in the world of Rome Even in light of all of this, God has made a way for us to become what we were never meant to be by nature. To become righteous even though we're born by nature to be unrighteous. He's speaking to Christians and they are in the midst of confusion and division and a mess. And what does he say to them? Therefore, since I have been justified, 
Therefore, since you have been justified. No, therefore, since we have been justified. Now, this we is incredibly important when you think about the context of the church. Paul's reminding the church in Rome that they are not united together in their judgment on each other, but in God's judgment on them. He is reminding them of something that it is easy to forget. And let me pause for a moment here because this is an application of justification and it's an application of justification that we absolutely need right now, not one second later than this moment. We need this truth and we need it immediately and every one of us knows it because each one of us is tempted constantly to cast judgment on each other for matters of preference and opinion. Because we disagree with each other on some matter or another. This was true of the church in Rome. They were made up of Jews and Gentiles. Let me tell you something. They had vastly different perspectives on the world. Does anybody feel like they're living in a world where there are vastly... You do? Thank you, brother. You're the only one. (laughs) Where we're living in a world where it seems like everybody has vastly different perspectives on each other. Has it ever been easier to take some matter of which we know this much and to make it the determining factor for how we assess others? The message of justification isn't just the good news that God has freed us from the judgment of God. It's having been freed from the judgment of God, you can now live free from the judgment of man. And you can live free from the equally bitter pill of living in judgment of another. The foundation of our unity is not what we think of each other. The foundation of our unity is what God thinks of us in Jesus. Anything short of that will always fall short of what we want because we were created to live free. And you can't live free if you're constantly posturing yourself to judge another or living in fear of the judgment of another. That's not freedom. That's just slavery to a different master. You see, we know we need to be justified. This is one of the reasons why we are so tempted to judge one another. Because we know that we need to be justified. We know that there's a deep impulse within our hearts towards proving ourselves right. And in a world where unrighteousness abounds and hearts that are marked by unrighteousness, we deeply desire to save ourselves. And if you can't save yourself, then you can damn another. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. And what about God reminds us of our need? What about God reminds us of our unrighteousness? It is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God. We spent so much of the spring talking about God's righteousness. Paul includes it in his thesis statement of the letter, Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul tells us right at the outset that a huge message of the gospel is the righteousness of God. So what is it? Maybe we've forgotten. God's righteousness is is threefold. It's multidimensional. Here's the first aspect of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his holy character. It's who God is is. God's righteousness is his holy and perfect character. It's who God is, but it's not just that. It's also what God does. It's God's perfect standard. 
So God's righteousness is his holy character. It's his perfect standard. It's what he does. And it's also, and this is where the good news gets really good, it's his gracious source of salvation. See, God's righteousness is not merely the vantage point from which God sits to judge the unrighteousness of the world, though he would be just in doing so. It's not merely God's standard for us that we have fallen short of, though we have. God's righteousness is also the gracious source of God's salvation. And this, in many ways, is what Paul is trying to deal with in Romans. How can a just God declare righteous those who are profoundly guilty? That's what Paul's trying to answer in Romans 5. He gives us a clue of this in another letter in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This righteousness that we desperately need and only God can provide, God has to give it. But somebody has to take our unrighteousness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how are we justified? Well, we're justified because God gives us a righteousness we could never get on our own terms by taking our unrighteousness and putting it on himself. This is a great exchange. The language of justification is legal imagery. It's an exchange moment. Just imagine with me here that you are standing in a court in front of a judge. You're guilty, you've committed the crime, and you know it. The courtroom is full of your accusers, and every one of them knows exactly what you've done. And after having and hearing the record of your wrongs, all of your mistakes and failures, the very worst of you, the stuff of your darkest shame, it's all read off, and everyone agrees, including you. The judge looks at you and says, not guilty. And the courtroom erupts because all of the accusers say, how could this possibly be? You yourself are confused. I mean, you want to be grateful, but you think you might be getting tricked. But as the crowd dies down, as your accusers yell out their voices, the judge says, all of his wrongdoings have been erased. Their penalty has been paid by another person. He looks at you and he says, you are free to go. I mean, right, you wouldn't be able to believe that, right? You'd be absolutely amazed. You walk outside to the courtroom, outside of the courtroom to the parking lot, and as you're getting into your car, you look across the parking lot and you see the judge hugging his son. But his son doesn't look like a son. His son has an orange jumpsuit on. His hands are shackled in front of him. And the son looks at you with the father across the parking lot. He looks at you and he says, you are free. Go and sin no more. This is justification. This is the picture that God gives us. Go free and sin no more. Not because the penalty has been erased, but because the penalty has been placed on someone else. The penalty of sin is not erased. The penalty of sin is placed on Jesus. It doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't just go into thin air. It doesn't just disappear. God takes the penalty of sin, all of our unrighteousness, and he sets it. On his son, Jesus. This is justification. We are declared righteous because the son was declared unrighteous. We receive by grace what Christ had by nature. We are given this gift out of the abundance of God's love because the son has absorbed the abundance of God's wrath. This is justification. 
This is the foundation of forgiveness. This is the substance of our salvation. This is the core of Christian confidence. Justification is the foundation. If you lose it, there is no forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Does this mean that faith is like our ticket into justification? What is faith here? What's faith do? Does God need us to do something to activate faith? Is justification the light and faith is the switch? This is not what Paul has in mind. A a better way of translating this would be to say, since we have been justified through faith. The Greek preposition here can be used as, as by or as through, and through is a much better translation of this verse because it accords with what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that faith is the instrument of our salvation. The old theologian said, faith draws everything from the work of Christ and contributes nothing to it. Faith is how we receive what God has secured. Faith is an RVIP access ticket to secure what God couldn't get on his own. God has secured a righteous standing and faith is how we receive it. Faith is open hands to receive a gift that God has bought at the cost of his son. Faith. We've talked about faith last spring. What is faith? It's sometimes hard for us because we use the word so flippantly. But faith involves three things. Faith involves our head. It involves affirmation. Agreement with what God says is true. Faith involves our head. It's affirmation to what God says is true. Faith involves our heart. It's affection. It's not just believing that what God says is true is true, but saying because of that, he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of love. He's worthy of dreaming and affection and imagination. He gets the principal loves of our heart. Why? Because what he says is true is true and it's good. Faith involves our head, it involves our heart, and it involves our hands. It's allegiance. It's loyalty. The Greek word for faith, pistis, was used often in military contexts to talk about loyalty and allegiance. Faith involves our heart. It's agreeing with what God says is true and saying that's true. It involves our heart. It's saying, God, we give you the principal affections, love, and worship of our heart. And it involves our hands. Saying, God, my life, my loyalty, my allegiance belongs to you above any other king, above any other Lord. This righteousness comes through faith, and it's absolutely different from righteousness by works. See, righteousness by faith is received as a gift. But when we try to become righteous by works, we exhaust ourselves through grit. Righteousness through faith, gift. Righteousness by works, exhaustion through grit. You will never, ever, 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 ever be able to out-hustle your unrighteousness problem. It's never going to happen. You are never going to be able to life hack your way into good standing before God. You are never going to be able to power through it. You're never going to be able to work through it. I don't care whatever anyone is selling you. Let me just tell you something. At the core of your life, you have a problem for which there is not a technical solution. There is not a process or a system you can implement, and there is not something you can do to outflank it. It is a problem beyond your repair. It is a Goliath in front of your giant. It is an enemy that cannot be defeated. You are far outgunned when it comes to unrighteousness, but you have one who has fought on your behalf. And your problem, it's bigger than you, but it's not bigger than him. 
And Christ has secured a righteous standing, and he can do it. Why? Because he's perfectly obedient to the law, because he's the son of God. And faith is the instrument of our salvation. It's the straw by which we drink the refreshing waters of rescue. This is what faith is. Faith is receiving what God has secured, this righteous standing. But it doesn't just stop with receiving it. It moves from receiving it to obeying it. You see, what begins is God's pronouncement. You are righteous in Christ. It begins to bubble up into our practice, how we live with God in the world. We start to become what God has already declared that we are, which is righteous. You see, justification is the foundation of our salvation, but it's also the foundation of our sanctification. If justification is where God declares us righteous, sanctification is the process by which God begins to make us righteous in practice. And it takes a long time. Justification happens in a moment, but sanctification happens over a lifetime. I have a friend who says that sanctification, the process of becoming what God has already declared us to be, righteous, it it grows like a beard grows. Not all at once. You don't see it happen in real time. I mean, maybe for some of you, it happens. Maybe if you're like, man, mine mine grows fast. Uh, But for most of us, right, it's slow. It's a slow growth. Sometimes it's not even noticeable. But incrementally, day after day, time after time, we begin to see the fruit of justification bubble up into the practice of our lives. So let me, let me give you a few thoughts here. What does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean to be justified by faith? Let me give you the first one. We no longer have to wonder what God thinks of us. We no longer have to prove ourselves to God. To be justified means that you can know today what God thinks of you. You can know today what God thinks of you. By faith, if you receive what God has done for you in Jesus, you can know today with full confidence, with full certainty, what God thinks of you, and he's never going to change his mind because declaration isn't predicated on your life. It's predicated on the life of Christ. That's good news. That's good news in a world of uncertainty and unknown to be able to say, listen, I've got a foundation. I know that I know that I know that I am righteous, not because I'm great, but because Christ is and nothing is ever going to change the Father's affection for the Son, ever. So we can no longer have to wonder where we stand with God. We can care deeply about one another because we don't determine each other's worth. God does. You can only risk caring and loving about another if your value isn't in their hands. Do you realize that? If God has declared us righteous, if he's already declared who you are and what you are, now you're freed up to actually care deeply, even in particular to care deeply for people that are hard to care for. Why? Because your value isn't in their hands. If you love and care for them and they assess you wrongly, guess what? You can continue to love and care for them. Why? Because their assessment isn't the gold standard. Their assessment isn't determinant of what you are, of who you are, of what you're to be. So you can only love unconditionally when you know the reaction of the other can't call into into question your identity and worth. Those who have been justified are free from needing human approval because we've been approved by God. That's good news. What does it mean to be justified by faith? It means, and this is the chief benefit, is we're going to spend all week next week, we have peace with God. What's the assumption if Paul says one of the benefits of justification is we have peace with God? What's the implicit assumption there? What would it mean for us to not be justified? To be at war with God. That we don't have peace with God. That God is not our friend, God is our enemy. 
So a chief benefit, I would say, if God is who he says he is and we are who God says we are, and that we're born into this world unrighteous at war with God, I would say it is a supreme benefit of justification that that war has ceased and now in place of it we have peace with God. That's an incredible benefit. That's the hope of heaven, and that's the despair of hell. Hope of heaven is where peace with God is finally enjoyed, fully, for good, forever, and freely. And hell with God is the despair of war with God forever. Peace with God is the chief benefit of justification. It's the foundation of peace that surpasses all understanding. We all want mindfulness. We all want self-care. We all want inner peace. There is no peace experienced until peace has been granted. And the foundation of granted peace is justification, to be declared righteous. We can live righteously because God has made us righteous and given us a new heart. You, if you have been justified, you can obey God. You're no longer the filthy worm that you were. You're no longer the wicked sinner that you were. You've been given a new heart. Obedience is possible. And let me tell you something. Obedience is better. Obedience is better. And you can obey. Why? Because you've been declared righteous. You've been given a new heart. You can live righteously. Let me give you the last one. Why does justification by faith matter? We can live justly in the world. Christians don't pursue justice in society because it's fashionable. We pursue justice because it's biblical. Because we're the people who say we've been declared just. We've been declared righteous. Having been declared righteous, don't we want to see the world brought into the same alignment that we've been brought into? Don't we want to see unrighteousness done? We, don't we want to see it finished? Because we've experienced righteousness. And who better to step into a world broken by sin than those who have been declared righteous in Christ and to say, that doesn't look like life in God's world. So we got to change that. Pastor Ray Ortland, he asked this question. What then does it mean for a church to stand rather than fall by the gospel of justification by faith alone? It means that a church teaches the doctrine of grace justification and creates a culture of it. And that kind of church, no one is forced to prove themselves. No one is personally humiliated or undermined or cornered or pressured to conform to a human demand. Everyone is free to seek the Lord and grow in grace and harmony with others around if confrontation is ever acquired. It is only because the gospel is being forgotten, abused, or rejected. Doesn't that sound incredible? Doesn't it sound like good news? To be in a place where no one is forced to prove themselves, no one is personally humiliated, no one is undermined, no one is cornered. Doesn't that feel like the kind of place you'd want to be? The kind of family you'd want to have? The kind of culture you'd want to be in? We can have that because we've been given the good news of the gospel. We've been given the glory of justification. But to have something so beautiful, so big, so defiant to the culture of shame, fear, judgment, anger, bitterness, lust that we find on offer in a broken world, we have to have a strong foundation to build something beautiful, something that's worth celebrating. The foundation has to be solid and the core has to be strong. And this is exactly what the architects of Boston's Hancock Tower found out when they looked to build their skyscraper in the 1970s. Before they even started to have the tower touch the sky, the foundation caved in. 
and almost destroyed all the nearby buildings. Even after they thought they fixed the foundation, in mild wind conditions, the building would sway. And not the kind of sway that's good for tall buildings, a lot of swaying, moving back and forth like a cobra. It says that the engineers began to warn the owner it was swaying so much, it was in danger of tipping over. And right at that moment when they felt like, okay, we now know the problem, 500-pound sheets of glass from the windows began to fall to the city below it. A complete overhaul of the tower was required. They had to install 1,500 tons of reinforced steel braces at the core of the building. You see, to build something big and beautiful requires a strong foundation, a solid, immovable core. It can't be flimsy. It can't be shaking. And like a skyscraper seems to defy gravity, the gospel seems to defy the ways of the world. And if the foundation and the core are not strong, the gospel will not stand. And justification, it is the 1,500 tons of reinforced steel braces at the core of the gospel. You lose the message of justification, you lose the foundation of forgiveness, you lose the glory of the good news, the core of our conversion, and the substance of our salvation. And maybe today you feel like, listen, I've never had that. I don't feel like a shaking tower, I feel like a crumbled building. Maybe you feel like you're moving back and forth with every wind of change that enters your life. I don't know where you're at today, but I can tell you there is no confidence. There is no foundation as sure and strong as what God has made for you in Jesus, what God has declared for you in Christ. There's this hymn that we sing a lot, and it says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the love of Christ I stand. That's the message of justification. This is the song of those who have been acquitted, of those who have been declared not guilty. This is a freedom you can have. It's not a freedom you have to delay. It's not something you have to wait. It's not something you have to prove yourself for or clean yourself up to receive. God has made it available to you in Jesus. Christian, you have been declared righteous in Jesus. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but I'll tell you what it doesn't bring. God changing his mind about you. And if you have waited, and if you are thinking, Pastor, you do not know me. I am so mired in guilt and unconfessed sin and shame. My marriage is crumbling. My life is a mess. My relationships are terrible. I have burnt every bridge. I have did everything wrong, and I have given it to nobody. I can't give this to Jesus. Let me tell you something as one who knows the stain of shame and sin. I can tell you there is nothing you're bringing to Jesus that God has not already placed on the Son and put the full wrath of God against it on him. There is no forgiveness that God is delaying because of your sin. God has declared us righteous in Jesus. Why wait? Run to Christ and say, I need this justification. I cannot continue to carry the weight of guilt, sin, and shame. Come to Jesus and tell him that. And if you are one who has already made that confession, walk in the freedom of it. And quit settling for the self-justifying ideologies of today. They will fade as quickly as they have emerged and you will be left unsatisfied when God is saying you can know the foundation of freedom today and you can walk on it forever. That's good news. Let's not leave it at the door when we leave here on Sunday. Let's walk in a freedom that belongs to us by grace that God has given to us in righteousness. Father, we love you. 
We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, and we pray that our hearts would be compelled, confronted, and comforted by it. We ask you, God, that for those who may continue to try to carry the weight of guilt and shame, that today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would awaken in them the gift of faith, and that through that gift, they would receive a righteousness you have already secured. And that for those who have received that righteousness, they would walk in the freedom of it. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the foundation of our righteousness, and by the power of the Spirit, who applies it to this day. We pray this in your name.